Um, welcome to Book Sandwich Dam. Um, I'm Bill Crossland with uh, Knox County Friends of the Library. And uh, we are honored today to have with us um, Susanna Sutherland, who was formerly Knoxville Director of Sustainability. And she has now, I think, started her own company and is now the principal of Sutherland and Associates. But today she's presenting The Infinite Resource by Ramez Nam. So today the book that we're going to talk about is very much idea-based. So it was a little bit difficult for me to get my arms around because I'm very much a doer and a boots-on-the-ground kind of person. And so if you're looking for him to tell you how to do these ideas, don't. But if you're looking at this as a broad perspective on what humans are capable of doing in the face of challenges like climate change, then that's how we should probably view this book. I didn't Google the author until I was finished with the book because I wanted to make sure that I didn't read it with a biased eye. <laughs> um, I didn't even, even want to know what his background was. He talked a lot about energy, talked a lot about climate change. Turns out he's a software designer, um, a bit of a rock star when it comes to his career. Lots of patents and awards and um, a storied past with Microsoft. It, that explained a lot of his perspective to me once I looked into him, um, simply because I noticed that there was very little about governance structure or education throughout the book, and I feel like his perspective is very much private sector-based, which is not a bad thing. It is where innovation comes from um, for the most part. And so with that in mind, we'll, we'll plunge right in. The book is in four parts, and it was rather lengthy. So the first part is the shortest part. <laughs> he talks about the best of times. And he starts with the case study of Europe and China in the Renaissance period. And he looks at why Europe excelled and China did not. And his conclusion is essentially that Europe sought out, funded, and encouraged new ideas. And China essentially forbade the written word. So there for a while we had a little bit of an imbalance between the continents. Moving ahead to today, though, if you look at, the, if you look at Europe in comparison with China and you look at who's innovating right now, and you look at why, a lot of it comes down to, again, the governance structure. So China decided that they wanted to grow a certain way, and they decided what markets they wanted to corner, and they have set about doing that. So it's a very interesting sort of flip case study. Um, you could write an entire book on this, and I'm sure there have been books. His two bottom lines here are basically, if you want something, design for it. If you want innovation, design your system to accept innovation. He talks about how we are in um, a crest of wealth. And I sometimes wondered throughout the book if he was talking just about America. Um, I think he's looking at it from a global perspective. He did talk about gross domestic product, essentially, are people getting wealthier? And he looked at it from the point of recessions, including the Great Depression. He found that they were drops in the bucket and that we've just increased our wealth as a species for the last however many hundreds of years that we've been innovating. He did touch on peak oil, and I know that this group has probably reviewed books on peak oil, so I'm not going to dig into this topic too much. Um, essentially, it's the debate about whether or not we're running out of oil. Um, and he says, basically, the lens we should look at peak oil through is from a risk perspective. So not, are we running out of oil, much like are we actually having climate change, but more like, okay, if we are running out of oil or if we're going through climate change, then what are we risking if we don't address it? 
And then he goes into peak everything, which is a little overwhelming and exhausting. Again, I will not bore you with all of the, the peaks that he talked about, but essentially there was he looked at things like, are we running out of fresh water? Are we running out of minerals? Are we running out of agricultural resources, fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera, and can we support ourselves? There is a line of thought that says we are peaking. So then he talked about greenhouse earth, which is essentially where he dealt with our carbon emissions and how they're increasing. There's a website where you can actually get real-time daily carbon data. So this morning I pulled it up, and I think we're at 395.93. The target's um, 440, and we sort of hover in this range. There's a whole line of discussion that says if we stopped doing anything, if we stop driving, breathing, et cetera, could we slow the effects of climate change as we know them? And, and a lot of this, the thought around that issue is no, we couldn't. Um, and so our best case is to shoot for a target. Well, then he asked the question, is this the end of, of life as we know it, essentially? Are we, are we peak everything and are we on our downhill turn to either create a new and different and better life for ourselves or to go extinct? And he says, no, we're not at the end of the party. Um, He says that crisis is danger meeting opportunity and that we have an infinite resource in our ideas and and what comes out of our minds as as the human race, which led him into the Green Revolution, which is actually a really good case study because people have won Nobel Peace Prizes for developing, you know, strains of wheat that are resistant to drought, et cetera, et cetera. Back when I was getting my undergraduate degree, the Paul Ehrlichs of the world were, were what people were teaching from, and so I read a lot of books like The Population Bomb and um, how we were going to all die of famine and we were going to run out of energy and, and basically everything was bleak. And so when I graduated, I was looking for a totally different career because we were all going to die anyway, so what was the point of trying? Um, those books have since you know, failed to come to fruition, and so he, he points out that Wolf has been cried. He does note that we shouldn't ignore the fact that crises are inevitable, or possible at least, um, he does paint a rosier picture than, than what I was raised on. It's, it's not to say that we have, have stabilized with our population, that we have stopped having poor people on the planet, and that we have a set of infinite resources. Um, he debates that later in the book. And then this is the interesting section of the book where he starts talking about the power of ideas and how we have built on the shoulders of giants. Um, When you make an invention, you're rarely starting from scratch anymore. Um, Perhaps if you invented the arrowhead, you had started from scratch. But the iPhone, for instance, is a conglomerate of of many different inventions. And he talked about how our lives have been completely revolutionized by different inventions. Uh, He talked about the raid on Macy's for nylons after World War II, things that I didn't know about that were very interesting about how our culture has been framed around different um, technologies. He says that life is better now than if you were, say, a king in Rome. Now you would have a flushable toilet and really good wine, whereas before you probably had sour wine and had to use the outhouse. He puts wealth in perspective in a lot of ways, saying that even the poorest in America can sometimes be richer than the richest king in Africa. Um, The power of ideas, he talks about substitution. Um, Again, I'm not going to spend too much time on this particular point. Uh, He did throw some very interesting stories in about how whale oil was so prevalent that whales were going extinct, and so that spurred the invention of kerosene. So his point basically is if the demand gets too great for the resource, 
then the demand shifts and a new resource is targeted. This is kind of common sense. And then he talks about doing more with less, um, basically lifestyle choices. He gets down into saying that the best tool that we have is, is reducing pollution and increasing efficiency. I would have to agree with him on this point. Getting at behavior changes is a super important point. It's just how exactly do you do that on a broad scale? If you can figure that out, you can rule the world. Energy consumption is still increasing. And the point I wanted to make with this is that essentially there is a strain of research that says that the more energy efficient we get, the more consumption is actually increased because we're plugging in more, we're doing more. And so there is a secondary train of thought to counteract his train of thought here that says perhaps um, because we are more efficient now and we do have better technologies, that doesn't mean that our actual consumption is going down. Um, we can basically mine our waste streams, we can mine our, our ocean water, and he goes into a lot of technologies that are very expensive and um, broad sweeping. He sort of tackles the whole energy field in this, in this section. He does touch on cost of technology and saying that as it becomes more prevalent, it does actually, the cost comes down, the payback period stabilizes. That's all very true. Um, a lot of what he did bring up in this section, I would say, is very far from being market viable, although we are seeing an increase in renewables. But those are mostly, uh, it's actually mostly wind. And there is some solar that's increasing too. And I know this group is very familiar with that, so I won't belabor those points. But he does say that human investment, investing in people, is our best source of capital generation. And then in the fourth part... He essentially covers how do you tap this innovation. So we have it out there. Whether or not it's market viable is, is to be determined. But tapping the innovation, how do we do that? And he deals with um, the market a lot in this section. And I am actually taking an economics class right now at UT. And I can tell you this is not my favorite topic. <laughs> but he does make some very valid points about the market that we don't in, in a market structure, we don't account for the, common, the commonly held properties, such as air and water, and in some cases, land, public lands. And he's saying that to address this law in the market, we have to start pricing things. And this brings me to carbon tax, because he has a, a simple plan. He talks about, A, you tax carbon. B, you raise the taxes until your carbon goal is met, which means incrementally every year your carbon tax gets a little higher, you hit your carbon reduction goal, you tax the goods that come into your country that come from unregulated countries to prevent leakage of pollution and also flight of companies to go to places that have less regulation. Then you reduce, you give the money back to the people, you reduce their income tax with it. And again, a huge body of literature on on cap-and-trade, endless discussions, Some local areas have done it. Um, Some parts of Europe have done it. The market studies on these have shown that they actually have not hurt um, economic growth in these areas. But then you think about the politicians you have to put this in place and who they answer to and the voices that they're hearing, and they're not hearing, go ahead and give us a carbon tax. And I wonder if they ever will. And so this is one of those sections where... um, having had a background in in state, federal, and local government at different points in my life, I get a little 
less optimistic about a carbon tax and regulation. Um, although I, I do feel like at some point we will have to do something. I do feel like it'll happen a little bit slower than this fellow does. He goes into kind of a, a section on bioengineering where he talks about carbon sequestration and pumping aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight to, to um, reduce our greenhouse gas um, he is generally well-rounded in his discussions in the book, but I think he probably could have emphasized here a little more that once you tinker with a natural system, there are going to be impacts that you haven't anticipated. So the hesitation, I think, to adopt a lot of these practices is we just don't know what we're going to what, what's going to happen if we start spraying aerosols into the atmosphere, for instance. <laughs> um, there is an entirely new well, I don't even know how new it is, but there's an entire field around bioengineering. It's interesting. He had a little plug for nuclear in here. We got really excited about it, you know, saying basically it should be considered a renewable energy and it should be viable and it causes way less deaths than coal. I know nuclear is one of those sticky topics. Um, he doesn't stop there with the sticky topics. He keeps going and talks about genetically modified foods, saying that Greenpeace essentially was responsible for a lot of the deaths in Africa because they worked with governments to, to halt importing of genetically modified foods. He says that we should be more open-minded to them and that um, they definitely have their place in making us a more adaptable planet. And he was saying that we have the technologies to essentially repackage, repurpose, burn up the waste as we create new, which is true. It's the old breeder reactor discussion from the 70s. Um, currently in the States, of course, we don't have the legislation to allow repurposing of waste, but in France they're doing it. Okay, so then he gets into collective behavior, but once again does not tell us how exactly to modify collective behavior. Um, this is where the social sciences come in. Well, we'll get into that in a bit. Okay. Um, but essentially he's saying the more mouths we have, the more mouths to feed, also means the more minds we have to produce ideas. And so... He makes the point here that um, people are, are moving to cities, um, and he, he cites Jeffrey West, who's a physicist, and how many have read his New York Times article? It's fascinating. I encourage you to read it. Um, but he pulls from, I think we've been in a sermon where the pastor pulls from the Bible and says something that you think is kind of like, but the whole story was, so I've sort of had that feeling when I was reading this. Um, he was saying that that this fellow has analyzed the city. He's put a mathematical formula on cities, and you can give him a sewer pipe, and he can tell you how many people live in that city based on the width of that pipe. Um, he looks at cities as systems of systems. It's absolutely fascinating. And he talks about how we have basically innovated ourselves out of every crisis we've come into, which is true. But you cannot continue to innovate forever and ever and ever. There has to be there is always going to be a dropping-off point. And so I feel like that's also missing in the book. Okay. So he talks about innovation as being the source of wealth. Um, there is a question about whether or not people even have access to education, which leads to innovation, which can then make them wealthy. Again, not touched on in the book. Um, he says at the end that we have an easy fix and a hard fix, and the easy fix is to just change our systems. And the hard fix is to ignore everything and then make costly changes later, much like a Sandy Superstorm type situation. Um, he's very optimistic. 
there's no mention of community. There's no mention of taking care of your weak link. There's no mention of education too much. And if you don't have those three things, if you don't have food, clothing, income, health, basic needs, you're not going to get the education and you cannot innovate. And that means you're just a mouth without a mind. I feel like this is what's missing. I don't know. (laughs) He talks about what we can do and what society needs to do. And um, basically he's saying be open to new ideas and embrace multiple approaches. I totally agree with that. He says communicate. I put vote in there um, because that's how you communicate in a lot of ways, in a meaningful way. Participate in the, and I put federal, state, and local. He didn't really differentiate between the different levels of government, but the bottom line is um, if you get frustrated by what you see going on in Washington, there are ways to get around that, and that is by plugging in to where you live and to making your voice heard. You'd be shocked to know how much your voice is actually heard in the city that you live in. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. So then he's, he says, what does society need to do? And this is my final point, but um, I assume society is they. You know, we always talk about they. They need to fix their markets to value uh, the common good. Okay. They need to invest in R&D for a long-term innovation. Um, you know, the, depending on who's president, we do. We ebb and flow with our investments in innovation and what types of innovation we're investing in. Um, we need to embrace... And by foreign, I don't think he means other countries. I think he just means technologies that we're not used to. And then he basically says we have to empower minds, which I think he's probably getting at maybe education here. Let's hope. And that's all I have for you guys. So now we can talk until it's time to go. In a presentation like this, I worry about the, at least the fact that the population of the, of the earth is increasing all the time, every year. Uh, innovation uh, seems to be making it possible to to manufacture and do things and build things, for instance, with less manpower input per unit of construction and or production. And it seems to me that that somewhere out there, there's a as the population increases and the productivity goes up, the amount of people required to do the job goes down. So what are we going to do with that block of people that are out here on the end of the curve? They're not just going to drop off. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any way in our current our current civilization and marketing system to deal with that problem. There's going to be a lot of people with nothing to do. We're looking at, a, I think, in this country right now, we're looking at a an unemployment rate, realistically, of 16 to 20 percent. It's not 5 percent. It's not 6 percent. Because a lot of people have just quit looking for jobs. And it might be that those people will never have jobs. So how are we going to handle that? I do know that as countries get richer, they tend to to be less labor-based, obviously. And I think what you're seeing here is his... This man is truly an innovator. He invents things. He doesn't necessarily come from his perspective of I never got the impression that he has even met a poor person I'll just put it that way in the book and and I think that so that piece of it is missing and so how to handle problems like lack of jobs for increasing populations not a topic of this book 
Yes. The idea of the more mouths, more more minds. Actually, it's a real old economics concept from the like 18th, 19th century. Uh, and the idea was increasing populations meant more economic activity. Also, meant more people to put in the army so you could go steal the next guy's stuff. Uh, and then the, the third view on it, though, was from Marx and a lot of other people, which was, as Robin said, you know, people are unemployed. They love the idea, and I don't know that it's not that uncommon today of what they call the reserve army of the unemployed. keeps wages down, uh, keeps people scratching for things. Uh, so none of that this guy touched on. Uh, he just thinks that if there's more people, have more ideas. Mm-hmm. Then he doesn't comment on whether those are good ideas. <laughs> if he did, I missed it. <laughs> yes. I actually have a funny aside. I, I used to work with Mez at Microsoft, and so I'm kind of wondering, you're in the industry. Does he have credibility? Is this book taking your industry by storm? Or I'm curious, why did you pick this book to discuss? No. Did somebody pick this book? I'm if I may curious. be totally honest, Emily gave me two choices. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thanks. Uh, two questions. One, he talked about increasing CO2. Did he mention anything about die-off? As CO2 goes up, uh, of course, the, the conspiracy theorists here say the wealthy will be protected. The die-off will come with m- m- the massive poor. Climate change definitely f- is the most threatening to the most vulnerable, absolutely. Did he say anything about massive Population decreased because of... No, he was quiet on that. What was the purpose of this guy's book? Just to kind of report on... I mean, I'm being, I am being critical. Just to report on how good innovation is? I mean, is that what he's saying? Broadly, yes, I think so. Um, I wouldn't have written a book, like, a book like this. To get back to your point, is it taking the industry by storm? No, it's not. I mean, it's... Innovation is a super hot word right now, as we all know. Um, everybody wants innovation. They want more innovation. And sometimes they don't even know what that means and what it looks like. And I think he's got this high-level view of innovation, but the practicality of what innovation is on the ground or how markets respond to it or what is and is not feasible on a political scale is missing from the book. So is he saying that innovation is our salvation? Yes. Okay. I enjoyed the read, to be quite honest, because it's unlike what I read on a regular basis. It was pretty easy to get through on an airplane because you didn't have to focus too hard on it. <laughs> but yeah, it was. I, I searched to find the meat in it and missed it for the most part. Yes? Oh, I'd, I'd like to address what you said earlier about being raised on Ehrlich and Silent Spring. Yeah. You know, I was certainly brought up through the environmental movement um, that plays an, a, an interesting dual role. It was started by, and you know, this may be a little controversial, but it was started by rich white men who like to hike. And then it became an, an organization that just basically created a group of supporters through fear. And there was always this fear, this planet is going under, this, you know, Ehrlich was frightening everybody that we would all be starving, we'd all be dead by now. And when you're raising the next generation of people to do this work on fear, they're not going to last long. And so I think books like this, sure, it's lightweight. 
There might be a couple of things in this book that, you know, you might want to think about a little bit more. But I think the message of, you know, there's, there's innovation that can solve these problems. We may have to think about things a little bit differently than we've thought about them in the past. Um, but I, you know, it's probably not a book I would pick up and read, but I, I think messengers like this need to, need to be valued a little bit more. It's easy to tear them down. They're not, you know, necessarily bulky with, with facts. But um, having spent many, many sleepless nights wondering how climate change is going to get me and, and my entire family, I would probably welcome reading something like this that says, you know, there is hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's unapologetically optimistic, which I think is, as you said, an unusual tone to take on this topic. Yeah. A lot of what you're after here is from the French philosopher Thomas Malthus of the late, in around 1790, we came up with the idea that the whole world is going to go to hell before long because we're going to breed faster than we could produce food. Now, he was perfectly wrong, of course. And so what this fellow has done, it looks to me like, is to take the other side of it and say, no, that'll never happen because we keep innovating. Malthus forgot to account for that. What do you think of the idea that we're just too ignorant to know where the innovation's going? Like Malthus was, uh, we just don't know about the innovation. That's why it's called innovation. Therefore, we're okay. (laughs) I can tell you that the things that are being developed in national labs, you know, make me pretty happy. Um, I think you're right. We don't know our limits as far as when it comes to invention. Necessity is always the mother invention of invention. And so if we are going towards a catastrophic crisis, I imagine humanity will do something about it. I think truth is always somewhere in the middle, though. And so we... Pr- <laughs> okay, let me, let me just back off that. Um, do we live on a finite planet? He contests that we don't. I think that that is a huge point of debate, and that's a big premise of the book. And so I admire the optimism, and and I think I sort of sit smack in the middle on this. I feel like the doom of, you know, the 70s and 80s, it's pretty awesome that we could invent, you know, drought-resistant wheat. I think that's awesome, but then... But then, right, can we innovate out of everything? So when I read, you know, this Jeffrey West paper, my first instinct was, like, my job is to innovate with cities. Um, I manage an innovation fund that has foundations put money into it, and cities compete, and they do projects, innovative projects. (laughs) And so I read this paper and thought, well, maybe I'm the one that's pushing us towards the edge of the cliff, along with all of my innovative cohorts, you know? I mean, maybe this is on me. And, and so I think that, what am I getting at here? I, I do think the truth is in the middle on this instance. <laughs> How about that? Anyone else? What sometimes, what sometimes seems like the hopelessness of this politically, and, and that is that because James Hansen and others have determined that, that our CO2 will probably be around virtually forever, Certainly its effects, such as mass extinctions, will be around forever. Um, States like Florida and cities like New York we can write off. Um, But that also means that what we do counts for more. Assuming that humans don't do something else terrible in the future, which is a big assumption, but to ruin our environment and wipe ourselves out, 
that means that, that what we do as individuals makes more difference now than it's ever made probably since humans were down to about 700 individuals in the south of Africa. The, the, other, the other thing is, does the Citizens Climate Coalition, no, what, what is it, the climate Citizens Climate Lobby, I'm sorry, has proposed a revenue-neutral carbon tax. The tax would be collected, say, $10, $20 a ton at a coal mine, and then the, the, the public would be reimbursed proportionately to offset their power bills. So that would basically discourage the power companies from buying more expensive uh, uh, sources of fuel, which would be the fossil fuels. And the the advantage of that, uh, they believe, is that even uh, conservatives who signed the notorious Nordquist pledge never to raise taxes could theoretically sign on to that because even though the fee is being collected, it's also being returned to the voters. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about is um, it's happening in different parts of the world um, and to pretty decent success, I would say. I think the carbon tax debate on a national level will probably be slower than the carbon tax debate at the local level, to be quite honest. I don't know if I was answering what you were getting at. Yes. You said that the carbon tax had been successful? Where? Denmark's a good case study, and there's a place in Vancouver, Canada, that right. has tried it. Um, well, the, the overall not, European situation, which you correctly said hadn't created a, uh economic problem, uh, has been largely unsuccessful creating a reduction in carbon, uh, That, yeah, which is supposedly the goal of the thing, is to reduce carbon output and particularly dumping it into the atmosphere, hasn't really happened. They've cut local carbon emissions, but but not global, no. Well, this isn't a local planet. Yeah, but here's where you're bringing up my optimist half, which is about this big. Um, I feel like if if you ignore the the power of the local, Mm -hmm. then you're just... Oh, I don't. I'm just saying that it's... And so it starts somewhere. So it starts in Denmark, or it starts in Vancouver, or it starts in Knoxville. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, Suzanne, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.